Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this bonus episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we contemplate the lessons learned from our coverage of the first part of the Yes catalog. This was just a casual conversation among friends, and we hope you enjoyed it. Okay, welcome to uh, Progressive Palaver, a special bonus edition being recorded um, here in Dallas as, uh, as we prepare for the Marillion Special Concert Series tonight. I am joined in person, which is very nice, by Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter. And uh, so this afternoon we thought we'd get together and sort of share our thoughts as we reflect back on the, the time that we spent so far in Progressive Palaver looking at the first part of the, of the Yes catalog. And Ken, you had suggested that we, we name this sort of exercise Yes, lessons learned, um, as we sort of put in perspective, maybe some some thoughts and ideas and feelings around the band and the music that we have now that maybe we didn't have, you know, when we started um, the the palaver, and certainly, um, you know, that I you know I I can certainly say that I didn't have, you know, as a much younger man getting into Yes um, back in the day as well. Because, you know, and I think we talked about this throughout the course of the of the podcast. Just generally, you know, our our, our thoughts and our perceptions and our feelings about a lot of this music has changed over the years as we've, you know, gone through our own changes and 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 we have maybe a different perspective on things. And you know, certainly, like I said, I I personally have, in a lot of cases, a much better understanding and appreciation for a lot of this music than, than I did back in the day, where maybe I would have liked it just because I felt like I should like it, you know? So, you know, and, and, and of course, in the palaver so far, we've, we've really, we've only touched on, you know, yes, up through drama. And, you know, we also, we, we do have a, a couple glaring holes in there. In that we, for the sake of expediency, at the time we we skipped right over, yes, and time and a word. Although we did end up talking quite a bit about time and a word in the preamble episode. Yeah. Um, but you know, after at this point we've recorded quite a few episodes of Rush, and starting out with the first Rush album and even Fly By Night. Um, you know, I, I found that experience to be very enlightening in terms of, of sort of putting things in perspective when you start from the very beginning. And even when you talk about um, King's X and the, the Black Light Sunday effect, um, you know, whereas Out of the Silent Planet seemed to, you know, come out of nowhere fully materialized and Black Light Sunday was sort of the Rosetta Stone that mm. explained that. So I, I think, you know... Maybe we did ourselves a bit of a disservice by just skipping right over those two albums. And we do also have um, the small, 
but somewhat significant hole that we did not um, actively discuss the single America, which is hmm. is important in the yes canon. So, hmm. you know, but but that being said, we obviously you know we we've, we've learned a little bit about how to uh, to run a podcast and what's important and what's not. So. You know, I, I want to uh, just sort of throw the, the floor open at this point, and uh, we can discuss, you know, what what lessons have we learned from and about yes? Mm-hmm. <coughs> True it. True it. Um, part of what inspired me to ask for this episode was my obsession with Steve Howe and his sound. I described him as inverse progress or the Benjamin Button of guitar sounds. <laughs> and, and I did, since, learn a bit more about uh, Steve Howe and, in the process, stumbled across uh, sounds for, and gear for Chris Squire. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was my genesis for learning lessons. And then we circled back into exactly what you mentioned, you know, forgetting about America. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. What we learned uh, while exploring Bruford and White in depth. Pretty significant there. Uh, truly. It, you know, it, it, and I think, you know, touching on Steve Howe, that is, you know, one of the things that has really hit home with me because um, I, I kind of sort of figured out the whole Bill Bruford thing, I think, before we had started this, um, despite the, you know, as, as Paul had mentioned on the, the Spot the Drummer episode, despite the, the jarring introduction that we all had to Bill Bruford um, in ABWH and, and Union with those, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything other than substandard, you know, electronic drums of the time. Um, if you go back actually and listen, I should probably get it and and play it on the on the stereo while we sit here and do this. But the ABWH live album, oh my god, that's that snare sound is mm. it's just jarring. So when you're trying to listen to like Heart of the Sunrise, and oh, it's it's not good. Um, so I already figured that out, but. But really, what I've come to appreciate, and, and if you listen to the, the preamble and a lot of the, uh, you know, my nonsense throughout the Yes section, and if you listen to the, the special concert series on the ARW shows that Paul and I did um, back in the fall of 2017, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a man crush on Trevor Raven, and I can't get past it, which, you know, has led me to, at times, think less than than fondly I don't know, less than what's the word I'm looking for um, to be a little bit hard on Steve Howe but what I have come to realize is that Steve Howe is as much a singularity as anyone else in that band and you know what Steve brings to the table is it's really it's it's so impressive, and you really don't miss it until it's gone. Um, so when you know I'm, I'm getting ready to sort of delve into the 
the John Payne Asia on my own, um, so as to not torture the rest of you guys with that. But, <laughs> but the the first album with John Payne in Asia is uh, is the is the album Aqua, and Steve Howe is listed on there. And Steve Howe is only listed as playing acoustic guitar, which you're like, oh, well, you know, what's that going to do? But if you if you listen to that album, it, it's it's much like Spot the Drummer. It's so obvious when Steve is playing, and it is so delightful. It really, really is. It's just spectacular. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, for for me, it was it was really sort of discovering a a genuine and deeply felt respect for Steve Howe. And not just for Steve Howe as, you know, the carrier of the flame of yes at this point. Um, I, I really I, I really do, you know, think he's he's quite exceptional. And, you know, so I need to buy him dinner if if I ever said things that was uh that was that was not uh not quite fairly earned. Oh I owe a couple. I owe probably a lunch and a dinner. I feel as though you're like when it comes to Steve Howe, and maybe you've been overly critical of him, but we all have been in some degree. But I think all of our criticism has been f- fair. You know, we've never like called him, um, you know, like the way you referred to Jay Shen so callously, Shellen, Shellen. <laughs> one one day just callously as like some wannabe, whatever you call him, wannabe something. Um, meanwhile, he's like drumming on half the Asia albums and toured with everyone that we love. Um, yeah, he's clearly talented. <laughs> I'm telling you, it just it, it didn't work for me that night. I don't okay. know what it was. Okay. Right. So, but I, I would I need to see them again so I can sort of get a feeling around this. Okay, well that that segues to maybe the amount of of attention that these guys get in their sounds and in their level in the mix and you know what it is that they're experiencing on tour as secondary musicians which is something that we talked about on the way here it's it's true and it's funny how when you when you're in that position you sometimes forget you know how many times have have, have we seen a version of yes or Marillion or how many times have we seen these bands play and you know maybe we say, oh, you know, we watch a video and it's like, oh, you know, Hogarth's voice sounded like really tired. It sounded, must have been the third night of the weekend or right. or that one gig that I remember Chris Squire must have been a little drunk because, you know, he was kind of sloppy in some of these. And, but when you're Jay Shellen and you don't, you're like sort of in the background, similar to um, well, Lou, our, our Lou yeah. yeah, Lou. I'm sorry. Current AR. Lou and Lee. Yes. Lou and Lee. Yeah, Lou and Lee. I wanted to say, uh, yeah, I wanted to call him, you know, by the drummer's name again. Yeah. But they, you know, you really only have that show. It doesn't matter. You know, you you could have twenty good shows where you're just amazing. The twenty first show, you know, you're kind of out of it or whatever. You don't have your best night, and that's the, you know, you're forever labeled as, you know, that guy was, you know, pretty lame, even though. Incredible, um, but like I think we've been fair to Steve Howe, and, and I just as you guys were talking, I was kind of jotting down a stream of consciousness here, starting with the Benjamin Button of a guitar sound. But you know, Steve Howe's sound became very gnarly and annoying 
through some of the the yes stuff that we we talked about a lot. But he definitely seemed open to production tips, right? Like as as he moved through his career, um, yeah. Like I start remembering the video of him doing uh, going for the one and the recording of the end of Turn of the Century. How he was trying different things. He was trying it with a pick, without a pick. He was trying it on a nylon versus a 12-string, like all these different things. Like obviously open to getting the best sound, and and there, at some point in time, there were just everyone was okay with his gnarly guitar sound the way it was. No one was saying, "Oh, we should tone the guitar down," or they were saying that and he was saying, "Screw you guys! You don't know what you're talking about." Um, but like when he goes to Asia, all of a sudden, solved. Right, right. Problem solved. No problem at all. And um, and GTR took that even a step further. Exactly. Right. So, so there was this. So then that led me to this idea of, you know, as we've gone through Marillion and Yes, and we're doing Rush now, and we've even touched upon it with Kings X. This idea of the influence that an outside producer has on the band versus the band producing themselves, and clearly it was the way it should have been for going for the one to be self-produced Tormato not so much but then you look what happened um, in like well I guess technically drama was self-produced as well but you know you look at the influence that an outside producer can have and there's the interesting thing about yes is if if you compare it to Rush is the difference between this like collaborative growth and like individual growth happening like you know hey I'm going my own way I'm going away from where you guys are going I'm leaving the band I'm going to go play with other people um, and the band has an arc of growth but it's done by different players at different times and sometimes they all come back together and do something and then they split apart and do their thing and it's curious to me that in the, in the case like Rush, like how many other guys in Canada were there for like Alex and Getty or Neil to go play with and say, yeah, I'm going to go do this. So maybe they're more opt to stick together and say, well, okay, they're kind of going this way. I'll go this way too. Versus yes. And the whole English progressive music scene where, you know, it's you know, everyone knows everybody and there's all these interchanging parts and everybody's played with everyone by the time we get to 1985. And so if you're slightly saying, yeah, I'm not really feeling that, you just pick up and leave the band. Right. That It's next man up and you can go do whatever you want in whatever other band and before you know it, you're Bill Bruford with the biggest ball of the, of the influence chart. <laughs> so, you know, just for me, it was... It, this conversation has just been like, wow, like, amazing how a band, two bands can have an arc. One can be sort of a collaborative growth versus one where it's more individual in and out. And I would say that album by album, Rush was far more successful at putting out consistent, terrific albums through this whole period, you know, versus Yes, with all the changing parts. Um, perhaps Yes, when they hit it right, they hit it right bigger. I don't know. I don't know if that's really... It's, they're so different. No, but changing parts, changing people. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. So, it just... I don't know if there's a lesson there. It's 
it's just interesting to me. Well, I think, you know, I, I do think that um, that is interesting, and especially with Yes, because not only do you have, you know, people leaving the band, but inevitably people come back to the band. Mm. You know, it's like they, they go off for their little walkabout, learn what they need to learn, and then at some point, you know, they bring them back into the band. Like, one of the things that's going on right now as, as Yes official which is the Steve Howe Yes, gets ready to celebrate, you know, the 50th anniversary of Yes, which is going on this year. Um, and it started on Cruise to the Edge. You know, they, they've got Jeff Downs as, as a full-time member of the band. They've actually brought back in Tony Kay to perform at all or most or a lot of the shows in this 50th anniversary thing. Yeah. Fascinating. So, you know, in my understanding, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard any reports from Cruise to the Edge. My understanding is, you know, that Tony's going to play alongside Jeff. So, you know, they have that. And, I mean, look at Billy Sherwood. Billy Sherwood was going to be in Yes after John left following Big Generator. And he was sort of, you know, nudged out to the side when... When Union happened, right, he joined the band to, su- or maybe it was after. See, and now I'm getting my lore mixed up. <laughs> well, you know, we're not terrific on the lore. <laughs> we're not terrific on our lore, but but he did wind up. He was on stage for talk. Yeah, and then he ended up, you know, joining again for Cover Your Eyes and the Ladder. Open your eyes. Or open your eyes. Yes. Sorry. Not to be confused with the. Cover my eyes, hit by Marillion. That's correct. Um, See, I've got Marillion on the brain. So, and, and then, you know, he left, and then ultimately he was designated heir apparent by right. Chris Squire himself. Well, you know, the interesting thing, and again, our lore has been questioned, and rightly so, but, you know, I think we're, we, we know more than what we've been given credit for. So, he was lingering with the band because of his relationship with, with Trevor, and... He was involved, and then he stayed with Chris and was involved in the Keys to the Ascension album. So, in the Keys to the Ascension, he was the producer right. of those live albums. And I think he did actually work on the, in- the originals in those with, with the band as well. So, he was kind of in from the, the days of the talk tour throughout. He was always associated with Yes in one way, shape, or form. Open Your Eyes was basically. A Chris Squire solo album that mostly it was him and Billy Sherwood right. writing songs together. Then they decided to make it a Yes album, and then he was a full fledged member of the band in Ladder, um, the Ladder album, which you know was sensational. It, it is sensational. The tour was also sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to Jay Shellen quickly, and you know we're kind of hopping all over the place, but that's what these bonus episodes are for. We can go wherever we want to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Back to Jay Shellen, what I find interesting in you know at the end of, of this past year, Yes saw the release of Topographic Drama, which is a live mm-hmm. album covering the tour on which I saw you know Jay Shellen in Las Vegas. Sure, where they played you know um, drama in its entirety, um, tracks one and four, and part of three from Tales from Topographic Ocean. Mm. One of the the comments that I've heard online um, in various places 
has to do with the fact that nowhere in the liner notes, apparently, and I haven't bought it myself yet. I've heard it's spectacular. Billy Sherwood apparently did the production, and by all accounts, he did a great job, mm-hmm. which is you know one of the things he's he's very good at. But nowhere in the credits does it tell you which songs feature Alan and which uh-huh. songs feature Jay. Interesting. And so much like we were playing Spot the Drummer on social media, you know, a month, six weeks ago, a bunch of people were trying to do exactly that. Um, you know, figure out, you know, who who was playing on, on which track because they just don't tell you, which I find interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. To, uh, to add to that, though, apparently there were some shows... And one of Steve Howe's sons actually joined hmm. the band for a while as Alan was recovering. So. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So there are some interesting um, players, and this goes beyond where we've been. Sure. But, but to, to some extent, you know, Jay Shellen is clearly a part of the Yes experience today. Billy Sherwood, we just said, has been a part of it since the talk days. Um. I don't know what it really requires to, you know, to, you know, Patrick Moraz was obviously involved in, in one particular album. I think the other um, standout um, was Peter Banks in the early days before Steve Howe. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I don't, Igor Koroshev was, you know, for me, he was a standout because when Igor joined the band, you know, he made the Masterworks tour really quite possible because he was really the only person that I've seen who I would say could hang with Rick Rick Wakeman note for note, mm. and he certainly did that. Um, so you've you've got a whole another band of guys, yeah. That I mean, quite literally, they they fill all the different different roles that that you can have, mm. and it strikes me. You know they're they're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which you can take with a grain of salt because let's face it, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is complete bullshit. But they inducted the Union lineup, which I think is who everybody considers the classic Yes sure. group, right? You can interchange Tony Kay and Rick Wakeman because of the albums that they played on, and Alan White and Bill Bruford for the same the same reason but what was said in the Yes Years box set video was you know when Rick Wakeman said you know it's the players at the time that have the honor of carrying on the Yes music which I felt was extremely profound at that time and and when he said that it you know made me fantasize that in a day like today we could have a version of Yes that would not necessarily have the players that we know, but would be carrying on similar music to Yes. Um, and that's just not the case. What we have is a bunch of really old dudes <coughs> playing the same stuff they've been playing since the 70s, which in itself is awesome. <laughs> but, you know, as we were kind of talking about, like, where's the new progressive rock music? Like, who's carrying the torch? Like, it would be fun if we had a younger generation of guys in Yes really putting their heart and soul into writing new music I, I don't disagree with you. I, you just to be fair to the guys who are 
in there. I mean, you can go to the discography of Billy Sherwood and find hours of amusement and enjoyment. True. So he is prolific in and of himself. Good. That is a great call out. No, Maybe I'm, I should do that more. More. I have listened to some Billy Sherwood. Circa. It ain't yes. Right? It's, yeah, well, it's more like open your eyes. Yeah. Which can be... Sorry, Billy, I'm going to buy you dinner. It can be ponderous at times. <laughs> it's tough to find good progressive music these days. I, I mean, like new. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm old. Like, I, maybe I shouldn't be passing judgment <laughs> on young progressive artists because... Maybe they're pushing boundaries that I just don't have a concept of because I'm an old fart. But well, and that that could very possibly be as well. I mean, we are old and more curmudgeon every passing day. Well, just a few hours ago you were toying with talking about Stephen Wilson. Yeah. And so, to be fair, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into that territory. It's true. And, you know, what's interesting about Stephen Wilson is as I love his stuff. And yet... What I think I love most about his stuff is it is it really. I feel like it's very original, but at the same time there there are elements that really pay homage to the old progressive ways, like the instrumentation and the the keyboard sounds. It's well, yeah, you were you were describing one of the tracks as, you know, oh well, let's let's give an homage to this Yes song at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, you know, I've, I've had the experience where I've been like, oh, check out this track. It's really great. And I've played it for friends and they're like, oh, this is like a total ripoff of like Rush or this is a total ripoff of like something from Yes. And it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe that's why it speaks to me. But, you know, then again. Mm. So I think, you know, and, and all of this sort of encapsulates, you know, a, again, if we're going to sort of keep this theme of lessons that we've learned... One of the lessons that I think we've learned is the, the, the power of the group dynamic in Yes. And, you know, we, I think we've, we've touched on a couple of different episodes, you know, sort of the, the, the critical mass of that and, and how if one or two individuals sort of starts eclipsing the rest for a period of time, the, the music tended to not be quite as brilliant as sure. as when three or more of the of the members were sort of contributing um, I think and and the other interesting thing that sort of plays into what how we started out here is is the the changing group dynamic so as you bring people in and out um, and you get sort of different perspectives and you know when you have um, I guess we had talked about in the in the beginning episodes, and, and Paul, I think you were on this, so correct me if I get it wrong. You know, there was there was some indication that that Bill Bruford was maybe pretty good at at editing in and, and creating structure, despite all of his his you know his his jazzy inclinations um, that that was lost, and then you have. You know, Rick coming in the first time with this sort of understated bombast, I'll call it. And then he gets bored and he goes away. 
and then he comes back and you get the glory that is go, going for the one and sort of the the general euphoria that that album to me conveys um, you know and that's that's a great example too Paul I remember you going off on the the demos of was it uh, turn of the century yeah yeah and, and and how that was so different from how the the track eventually ended up and presumably you know Steve Howe's trying all this different stuff and, yeah. and so someone brings an idea and everyone else says well what if we did this and, and you get something magical about it so you know I think that to me that that was sort of illustrative because when you're when you're younger and you're you know you're getting into yes when we did in the, in the late 80s early 90s you know, you've got ABWH coming in and you, you hear about the, the soap opera drama of the lineup changes and everything else. I certainly didn't pay attention to how that manifested in the music. And I think through, through the Prolaver, I was able to, to sort of see that. So... With yes, the whole is better than the sum of the parts. Clearly, and you know, I th- I still think one of the things that made going for the one so amazing, and and all the things that you just talked about was that they had a small period of time where they went and did their own thing. You know, John locked himself in a garage and recorded Elias of Sun Hillow. Chris Squire went and did. Um, fish out of water, which I, just had like a big anniversary release, by the way. Really? Yeah, big box set wow. thing. Um, Steve Steve one did his own solo thing. Rick Wakeman, I think, did Journey to the Center of the Earth. Maybe I don't remember. He probably did a couple things. In he the he he was out of the right. He was out of that. So so it was like I think Alan even had an. Uh, an I think he may have. I think he. I mean, yes, I don't. But they all went their different ways. They all got that some of that individual stuff out of their systems, and then they came back and you know collaboratively put together a you know a, a phenomenal recording, and you know and then right after that it just kind of all went back to shit because they were all just back to you know doing whatever and there was discourse and oh. negativity maybe I don't know but. I guess the the point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, that, for me, I think the lessons learned is bands should fucking stay together. They shouldn't break up, and they should give time to do your own thing and then come back and and be a little bit more at peace with oneself so that they can they can truly be creative together. Well, I think when you that that's a great point, Paul. And when you look at some of the other bands that we have discussed or are discussing. Um, Marillion certainly, you know, after the original, well, you had the the drummer right. thing in the beginning, but and then after Fish left, I mean, they've been they've had the same lineup for I don't even know how many years it is, a very long time at this point. Rush, same thing. You had you know a group of of musicians and Kings X too, who were were growing together throughout all of this, and certainly you know Marillion, you know Pete has been doing. What transatlantic and did he have another one? I think he he's got another group. Um, I don't know. Rothery's done some stuff. H does his yep. you know his H natural gigs and you know it and it really it does seem to sort of provide them 
you know, enough space. You know, it, it's almost like, you know, I remember, you know, when when you're married and stuff and you hear, you know, and, you know, relationship advice and what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to, you know, go out and find some things that you can do on your own, but then take that energy that you get from that and bring it and invest it back into your relationship. And I, you know, to me, that seems to be what Marillion does. Mm. Um, and maybe not, with some exceptions, what Yes has always done. Right. Like, I think, you know, in any relationship, you know, and, and this may be the problems that many of us experience with marriage, is that, you know, you're supposed to be two individuals that come together, and the individuals are what make the whole great. And... You know, many times there's all of a sudden, okay, well now we're a whole, so now we have to do everything together and we have to be the same. And and there's compromise beyond the level of the individual that, that causes problems. And I think it's similar in, in music. And to your point, Joe, like even thinking about Genesis, and we haven't really touched on them, but the, you know, they were, they were, um, they went through changes in a band that were very subtractive, right? Right. They didn't reform with new people. They just mostly got rid of people as they went along. People, you know, for whatever reason, didn't like the way things were going, and they got off the train. But then you you still had the same... Whoever was left kept going until it was just the three of them. And And then they would do that. They would put an album out. Phil Collins would do a solo album. You'd have Mike and the Mechanics. Tony Banks would show up on different people's records. And then they'd come back. Tony Banks showed up on a Fish record. He did, I remember that. I'm sorry, Fish showed up on a Tony Banks record. That's it. And and then they would come back and then they would they would do a Genesis album. Yeah. And they would go off and and do that. And and you know, I guess when Phil Collins left they needed to get someone else to sing, so so there you go. But you know, and then even if I don't know that we would call this band progressive, but you know, the Eagles, you know, they were just so different as songwriters and they each they reminded me more of anything than surface tension um, where you had specific songwriters they would write a song and the, the band would do that song and then this guy would write a song and the band would do that song and then they broke up and they said we won't get together until hell freezes over that's how certain they were that they hated each other that much uh. but then after they all went off and did solo records and they all had success doing solo what did they do? They got back together and they toured and they cashed in and they made millions touring as the Eagles again and they even recorded one or two albums after that. And they're still recording touring as the Eagles. Yeah. Did not not to, to yeah. stop you mid roll, but did you see the the documentary on the Eagles and all and all of that? I haven't seen it yet. I'm dying to watch it. It's it's really really a good good watch, but let me tell you Glenn Fry was a dick on the order of Billy Joel. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I can't wait now to see it for sure. I mean, you you just want to reach through the screen and smack him. Wow. Not that he's necessarily wrong, but he's just a dick about it. I clearly remember on the Hell Freezes Over tour, like, watching... I had, like, amazing seats. I was, like, in the tenth row. And there were, there were certain songs that you were just like amazed at how the band worked together. Yeah. Hotel California was one of those songs. Like everyone's got something to do, everybody's like totally engaged in the song. And then there were other songs where it was so obvious that 
okay, Glenn Fry wrote this song. Yeah. Because yeah. he's doing the guitar and he's singing his heart out. And everyone else is basically just standing around. <laughs> <laughs> and then there'd be like another song and it was like, you know, Don Henley's turn. And it was just so obvious that, you know, there were parts of their careers where it was just, the band was just the mechanism for the individuals to write their songs right. and, and do it. But in a way, that was what made that band so great because like, you know, you'd have, a, you know, like something that Glenn Fry or that bass player guy, I can't think of his name, was writing that was so... Timothy B. Schmidt? Yeah. So subtle and beautiful. And then you have fucking Joe Walsh just like slamming guitars up your ass uh. <laughs> on the next track. I mean, it was... That's what made them so great. And I think of Sticks in the same way. Like, they they yeah. kind of, they kind of uh, you know, did that thing and you know, maybe had they given themselves space to do more solo stuff, they would have... They Stayed friends. I don't know. Well, and it's interesting though to to bring this back to yes because you know clearly you have you know people you know writing songs and bringing it to the band, um, but in a lot of ways and and maybe it was it was just the the size of the egos in the room. I don't know if each individual then you know wanted to put their stamp on it, um, but but I think clearly they did with. You know, maybe the exception of Tremato, where things just got, you know, crazy out of balance. Hmm. Um, with that, it was funny. I was just before you, when I was waiting for you guys to get in last night, I was reading some of the booklet from the In a Word box set, and I was reading the section like leading up to drama, and it was talking about the Paris sessions with. Um, was it Roy Thomas Baker? I think. I think so. Was the uh, was the producer for that? And they had you know Rick Wakeman's always good for a quote, and they had a quote from Rick saying, "Well, you know, we were having these sessions and things just weren't working out. John and I had a bunch of stuff we were working on, and no one else seemed to like it, so they just didn't even really bother showing up." Right. And it's fascinating to think about that because. You know, I think as we reviewed drama in the Palaver, we all feel very strongly and positively about drama. Well, who were the three guys who weren't paying attention to what John and Rick were doing? It was Alan, Chris, right. and Steve. You right. know, yeah. So you know, clearly they had something else on their mind at this point that was not necessarily aligned. If if John and or if Rick and, and John were off, you know, huddled in a corner, right? doing something and, and you know it just it, it, it I guess it was almost tails all over again mm. yeah so yeah I mean you know that that's that's a really good lesson that that yes historically is greater than the sum of its parts which is is interesting you know the um, and we we talked about it sort of before we we hit the record button but and, and it's perhaps more obvious you know, certainly the the impact of Bill Bruford is is something that you know. Like I said, I had sort of started to figure it out before the palaver, but it was not something that I definitely knew. You know, as a as a young twenty something year old pup who was all about the rock drummer Alan White. Yeah, you know. Um, so that was that was something else that I, I picked up throughout this. Hmm. Well, I'm convinced that both Alan White and Barry D'Souza emulated 
Bill Bruford, not to mention uh, Lou Molina III, and Jay Shelton. So many people have been forced to emulate yeah, that's Bruford at various points in the yeah. careers of the bands and the side projects. Um, yeah, no doubt. Very influential there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's no small feat because, you know, Bill Bruford's drum lines, you know, on... Certainly on the Yes album, Fragile, and Close to the Edge, you know, there, there wasn't anything else like that going on. Um, so, so that's not easy to do. I, I had to laugh when we were playing Spot the Drummer, and one of you had made the comment of, you know, it sounds like someone trying to play Bill Bruford. And I believe it was, it was actually an Alan White track. So if you, and, and that's why I brought up the timing of that. Because that would have been during the Close to the Edge tour when Alan was, you know, all Alan had to play was Bill Bruford songs at that point. Yep, right, right. Yep. So, so Alan came into, into the Yes thing being told to play Bill Bruford every night for yep. however long. And, and, and I, I just thought that it was all I could do not to laugh when, when one of you guys said that. <laughs> <laughs> And there it is. Hmm. There it is. I'm excited to go back to Yes and and take on the second derivative of Yes, if you will. I mean, I don't know if that's really the, the right way to put it, but the um, the modern day Yes, whatever, whatever it is. Sure. The Trevor Raven Yes. Hmm. And after. And after. And I'm excited about it. And yet, I. As you know, maybe maybe this will continue. I've been so fond of the early yes stuff, and I became so much more fond of so much of it in in this first half that we've covered that I'm almost afraid that I'm not going to like. Like I'm almost afraid, like I'm going to be one of one of those people who I thought were old geezers when I was really into yes in high school. And they were like, yeah, 90215 and Big Generator, it's not as good as, as the classic stuff. Um, and I thought, what are you, crazy? This stuff is awesome. I'm, I'm, I fear that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be feeling that way. Like, yeah, maybe 90125 and Big Generator are not going to stand the test of time. Um, I don't know. You know, it, and it's fascinating because I, I, was, I was having a conversation with, with Kevin from the Yes Music Podcast. Um, via Skype, I guess, or not Skype, um, Twitter. And, and we, were, we were discussing sort of that very thing um, as we were sort of comparing... It specifically, we were, we were um, comparing Lee and Billy Sherwood hmm. um, and, and the way the differences and how the two Yes bands sort of utilize them and the fact that Billy is doing everything he can to literally channel Chris Squire every night. Um, and, and, I mean, he, he does a fantastic job in terms of, of you know, playing the notes and, and sort of doing the things that, that Chris would do. Um, and, you know, obviously from our experience, you know, I, I can't say enough about Lee. Um, yeah. You know, I... I Brilliant, yeah. And, and, and I described it, you know, when, when we're talking about both of them, I described it 
to to Kevin as an embarrassment of riches. You know, because here we are, we're we're we're, we're comparing and contrasting and splitting hairs. You know, between these two really phenomenal musicians, really just great, who are both playing lines from you know, for for my money, you know, maybe the the greatest bass player ever. Mm. You know, um, you know, certainly an iconic bass player. Yeah. So you know, we we have these these great musicians who are playing this great music written by another great musician. We can't lose, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I am curious, because I, ha- I don't have the fortune of having seen the Yes official band, only the Yes with ARW. Um, which performances do you think are better of, of the songs that they play that are the same? Boy, that's such a loaded question. Um, because you know, one of the things that I I really find interesting about about ARW is the fact that, and this was true back in the nine hundred one two five and big generator days, Trevor just eclipses everything. Trevor wants and. and I don't know that Trevor wants this. I'm right, right, I'm, right. I'm I'm expressing what I see, but it's like, you know, the Trevor's sound can't be big enough. Trevor can't have too much of a spotlight, and so it, it's it's fascinating that he even has the ability, to a certain degree, to sort of send Rick Wakeman, the the sparkly cape wearing Rick Wakeman, sort of off to the side of the stage. And, and, you know, down in the mix. Because there were several of those ARW shows we did back in the fall where there were times when you couldn't even hear Rick. But you could hear Trevor. Yeah. So so that's a long-winded prelude to say that the ARW interpretations of, of the Yes songs that they have in common are so dominated mm. by Trevor. And, and as we've discussed ad infinitum... Trevor is so different from Steve Howe. Right, right. So in, in a lot of ways, you know, if, if you were to ask me, the, the Steve Howe or Yes Official presentations are perhaps more true to the recorded versions. Yes. But that takes nothing away from, from just the, the level of shredness that... Trevor brings to those as well. Yeah, and, and that was something we also discussed in the in the ARW shows or cast that we did, Paul. In that, you know, in this incarnation of Yes or ARW, whatever you want to call them, while Trevor still plays the songs in the same sort of way that he always did, he seems so much more connected and invested in them now than I re- ever remember him being. You know, back in the, in the early '90s, mm. and so you know, I I think, and, and having, you know, honestly, having John Anderson singing certainly the way he is right now, it it does lend a certain credibility to the ARW versions, even if they're different from the recorded versions. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and part of the reason I was asking was because, I mean, John Anderson. Kind of makes it, kind of, kind of 
takes away this idea of when you think about these old guys touring for these old bands, like how much of a tribute band it is. Right. right. And the Yes Official, you know, you've got Billy Sherwood, like you said, channeling Chris Squire. You've got, you know, Jeff Downs played on, you know, I guess technically, what, two Yes albums, maybe three Yes albums, but for the most part, one. And, you know, there's, there's a bunch of guys on there channeling other people, John Davison channeling John Anderson. You know, when you think about, like, people criticize Journey, like, they, like some of the bands that tour now, Journey, sure. Styx, uh, Foreigner, for a great example, um, being tribute bands, like the ultimate tribute bands, because there's a couple guys in there that used to be in the band, but for the most part, they're, they're like tribute bands. Sure. And I'm, I'm just wondering if, if you feel like there's any more authenticity in either, either one, but it still sounds like they're just so different that, that it's, it's hard. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, it is, well, and so ironically, part of the reason why I, I was so down on Jay Shellen was he seemed, and, and keep in mind, with the exception of Union, and, and Alan White was on Union, that was the first time I'd ever seen a Yes show, disregarding ABWH, without Alan playing drums. Mm. And whatever he is, Jay Shellen is no Alan White. And, and it was just, it was jarring to me. Mm. Um, mm. And I think maybe that's what put me off so much, just because it... It, it was it was so very different and and at that point you know really Steve Howe was was the the holdover I mean mm. and again yeah. all all credit to to Jeff Downs and his you know his credentials and yes because he he has them mm-hmm. but not not of the longevity of you know, or or the breadth of influence of a John, a Trevor, or a Rick. So I'm I'm looking at this this band up there, and it, it's like you said, it's it's like a tribute band with Steve Howe, right? And it just it you know it wasn't it wasn't the yes that I had known because I you know I had been seeing yes official. I think I saw them on the pre prior two tours, um, where they were doing this album series. So I saw the, I forget you know, forgive my 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 lore mess up here. But the prior album tours they did, I know they did going for the one, and fragile I think was was the one immediately prior, and then before that they did um, the yes album and maybe close to the edge something like that. Mm. Um, so I mean, those shows were kicking. Yeah, absolutely kicking. But again, you had oh with Squire. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And and that segues to some of what I wanted to discuss with Gear when okay we get an opportunity. But yes, yes. yes. Um, all, all the clips uh, do show how much work they put into that and how on their game they were. Yeah, I mean those those shows were freaking incredible. Mm-hmm. So so good. And then, so suddenly I find... And there, there was a lot about that show. It was it was in Las Vegas, 
I was rushed to get there. We got there like literally two minutes into Machine Messiah, and it was an I didn't it was unknown to me. It was an outdoor arena. It was a very weird crowd. There was there was just a lot about that 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 just didn't sort of gel for me that night. And and so I'm I'm in this situation now where I'm I'm looking at this this group of people that you know aren't really what I expected. And and to be honest, and, and again I haven't heard the live album. Drama and half of Tales from Topographic Oceans. Think about sitting through that as a concert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't quite flow like fragile and going for the one. Right. You know? Right. right. It, it that's that's a that's a big heavy plate to swallow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's just oh geez. And so, you know, it was there I think there were a lot of things that, that sort of got me there. Um and then when we saw ARW that first time in Austin, you know, it was it, there again, it was sort of this there was this newness, there was this excitement there. Um and I couldn't I couldn't even tell you if that show was good, bad or indifferent, but I remember it being spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we weren't making podcasts at the time, so we don't we don't have recorded our thoughts. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I, it, it's it's certainly different. But you know, I I do think that that Steve and certainly Jeff, you know, they're they're very valid keepers of of the mm. of the banner, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you you can't. You can't fault Steve Howe's attention to detail, his amount of preparation, his willingness to work. I mean, we've talked before. You know, Steve Howe on stage is a freaking monster. Yeah. He just yeah. never stops. Um, yeah, and he didn't choose not to work with Alan White. Alan White. Yeah, I mean, he's had was, back problems. Was unable to right. play for you know, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he didn't choose to lose Chris. Chris, you know. Right. Guys, so yeah, yeah, and, yeah. So this is essentially what, yes would have been with you know whatever differences arose with uh, John Anderson not sure yeah. there but right yeah well and that's you know that's that's the part of it when you get all of this stuff that kind of comes back and forth great good um so yeah you know and so what's let's talk about some gear then, Ken. Um Yeah, I was critical of Steve's sounds. Um but the intent, looking back in hindsight, Steve has very good intent. He's always mixing things up and he's always bringing in new instruments. Whether it's the Portuguese acoustic guitar or his Gibson, you know, ES series or a lap steel. And I think what put me over the edge personally as a, as a listener, we talked about this, was the lap steel. Oh, that's, yeah. That's going for the one. Um, and he was doing it because it does kick ass. And I'm sure live it puts a jolt of energy into any show. And, you know, he always found some tasteful way to work it in. That, that lap steel persisted uh, for drama from what I saw in one of their videos. Yeah. He's all set up with it. Um, 
but the way in going for the one it came across was, was whiny and over the top. And I, I think, you know, getting that excitement captured on tape with the right melody was the goal, and not so much finding the right production to capture that goal. So it, it's great energy, great intent. And I, I have to give credit to Premier Guitar for doing a video series or, you know, two long video clips, one with Chris Squire, one with Steve Howe. Um, the Rig Rundown by Sean Hammond in 2013 is absolutely brilliant. It's got to be over an hour of material. And they sit down uh, with Chris and with Steve separately, and they each talk about their gear. And that's where I picked up on Steve's sincerity. Uh, he has put so much effort recently with the Bariax yeah. into reproducing those old sounds, but maybe in a more controlled, reproducible way, you know, economical way. Well, I, 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 I think that's part of it, because when I was seeing, you know, yes, five, six years ago, whatever it was, you know, when they're, they're playing all these, these tracks from these albums, Steve's, you know, he's switching out guitars at least every song, in some songs, he's he's got one strapped to him. He's got one on a stand, mm -hmm. and then yeah. he's like got the lap steel that he's kicking out of the way to you know. I mean, he was just it was he was going to wear himself out if he didn't find a, a more efficient way to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's rough on him. It's rough on the crew. You don't know what's going to break down live, and he he talks about working with his tech, you know, for hours, sitting down, coming up with a bass sound, tweaking it, getting it to sound more like the original recordings. And uh, that I, I, I respect, you know? Um, and just going through the clips and checking out some of the recent stuff, it, there's a payoff there. Was, was that the video? I, I saw part of a video where he was talking about the Variax, but he was also talking about, like, two or three of his Gibsons, and, and this one was, like... A 502, but it had the switch in the in a different spot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It, yeah, I did. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about, but I was just amazed that you know he was talking like this was you know normal knowledge to anyone. Right, particularly Gibson ES175 is the hollow body guitar, the bulky thing that right. he's known for playing, and he alternated also to a Gibson ES345. Um, he has most of his original collection, although theft bit him in the ass a couple of times, but he was able to come up with substitutions. Um, you know, and likewise, you know, it's amazing how many times Chris Squire revved his Rick. That Rickenbacker uh, took a lot of abuse. Yeah. And uh, his tech... Uh, eventually did what, what we know as the pale yellow finished with white pick guard and kind of threatened Chris like stop messing with your instrument because you <laughs> won't have enough original wood you know if we keep stripping it we're killing it really yeah mm. yeah yeah so Chris stopped monkeying around 
after that particular job. But you know that is that is his thing. And as we know from you know Getty Lee influenced by Chris Squire, you know Getty Lee was big with the Rick. Yeah. Um, you you do see where you know there, there, there's some uh, convincing commentary on the web where you know Getty had to give up the Rick and he he got way more um, low end clarity out of uh, Fender Precision well Fender Jazz um, so the Rick w- was was a really big deal at the time. In the seventies, didn't necessarily carry through the ages. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say, and I, I forget again where exactly it was, but I've, I, I, I have a recollection of a, I believe it was a Steve Howe interview. It could have been a Jeff Downs interview, but I think it was Steve Howe talking about how Billy Sherwood has put great effort into. Recreating Chris Squire's sounds, although using technology to do it, as opposed to, you know, getting the same exact rig mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and playing it that way. It's amazing the rig that he did have. He had two pedal boards, one for himself and one for his tech. So in the event that Chris, you know, wasn't near his pedal board. He was off screwing around somewhere else. He was, you know, right. dancing, serenading, gallivanting. Uh, he, 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 he had backup. You know, and, 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 you know, sometimes, depending on the arena, maybe he just couldn't hear himself enough to think what he should sound like in any given time. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't fault him for not necessarily controlling his sounds at all time. I, uh, That's funny to know. Can, can I just take a second to celebrate... Chris Squire, because one of the things about Chris, and it didn't matter, you know, if you look at, I, I watched, um, I watched 912 Live very recently, like last week, which, unfortunate wardrobe aside, um, but but from that, you know, that period, and, and even before, and certainly I every time I saw him after that, Chris Squire irrespective of his age or anything else loved being a rock star mm. he loved it <laughs> so yeah he would he would be cavorting and doing whatever else on stage and you could just tell he thought it was great you know i mean i made i've made jokes in my life about men of his age wearing leather pants and why that shouldn't be and everything else but you know what he was freaking chris squire and i wasn't so mm. Who am I to say? But I, I do, I do certainly appreciate that about Chris. He 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 enjoyed his job. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like Steve Howe. I you know, I think we can elevate Steve Howe into the pantheon of rock gods. But but Steve Howe works on stage. Steve Howe's there to do a job. Damn it! Oh, always. always. You know, absolutely. But Chris Squire, it's like, yeah, we're the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, it's interesting that you say that, and as time went on, I don't know that Chris Squire's bass lines got more and more complex, um, you know, when you think about guys like Getty Lee, you know, some of the shit that, that Getty Lee does while he's singing in 
and um, certainly Steve Howe's remained acrobatic all these years. I, I, I love the tone um, piece because, you know, I, I definitely think, you know, Ken, you said that the, the Rick kind of went out of style, and I think that, you know, I think the classic bass amplifier is the, the Ampeg SVT, right? Mm, yes. and, and I think that paired with the Rick with a little extra gain kicked in. Oh, yummy. Um, became central to the Chris Squire tone and, and, um, and, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I can't wait to watch that rig rundown and I can't wait to see what he's using and I, and I know that, you know, bass players would use guitar amps too and they would break up and crackle and that would add to that amazing tone. And, you know, Getty <laughs> certainly, you know, took it and took it to the next level, um, or a similar level, but in his own way. I think, I think one of the things that over, it's funny, we've talked a lot about gear and tones on this little excursion to Dallas. And one of the things I've learned over probably, particularly the last 10 years, as I've really started to try to zero in on guitar tones and bass tones and things like that, that most of it's in your hands. And, you know, you can get the right amp, the right guitar, the right pedals, but set it up exactly the way you're supposed to, and it still doesn't sound anything like it's supposed to when you're comparing it to the great people that you're trying to emulate. And, um, and you know, ironically enough, Doug Pinnock is a huge fan of Chris Squire, and, you know, when he talks about his sound, he brings, oh, no doubt. brings up Chris Squire all the time, and he certainly took it to the next level with the amount of gain that he uses and yeah and and the way they recorded the 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 earlier King's X album specifically with the you know doubling the lines with the bass amp and a guitar amp distorted and and you know now the good people at Tech 21 are now making preamps that are packaging these tones you know Getty Lee has his own rack mounted preamp Doug has his own amplifier and pedal and when you watch demos of them, like, you can hear, you know, you, I can't wait until I get my Doug Pinnock bass pedal because, you know, when you watch some of the, the demos of it, you can, they just turn the one knob and it's almost like you're going through decades of bass sounds That's just by adding the gain and how much they're putting on there. I was going to say, does it, does it go from out of the silent planet through ear candy through 15? And seriously, <laughs> it almost... It almost when you when you cut the gain, you almost hear like those early Chris Squire tones, and you know it's it's really I can't wait to mess around with it, um, you know. And it's fun to sit there and 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 think about these guys emulating each other, and yet the, there's so much of it in their hands that that are communicated across. And mm. the bass tone is a wonderful thing. I just scrolled through the rig rundown. Um, absolutely, Chris Squire was into the SVT, mm. but uh, believe it or not, he had a Marshall head. Yeah. A 1965 JMP. Mm. Um, and he was mixing that Marshall tone, which I can only imagine is, is a bit bright. Yeah. With the MPEG SVT. You know, it's, it goes back to like the, the Eddie Van Halen shit and the Variac and the. And the, the Lowering the the voltage, 
you know, the brown sound, if you will, and, like, guys are chasing that tone to this very day. Yeah. And they're making amps that say, this is it, this is that, you know, and and um, these guys were truly innovative with their sound, like, mixing guitar and bass amps and, and putting it together. And, and I have to say that my Mesa bass amp fucking kicks ass. And you, the, between the gain knobs and the bass pull-out knob, I mean, you can get some... Th- thunderous and fairly distorted tones um, and I by no way approach the, the tones of Chris Squire or anyone <laughs> else but you know you know the fun part about playing instruments is that it's all you right you you know I, I play bass differently than just about everybody that I know because I use a pick and I f- play it hard and 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 I do it that way because that's the way I love how to, the, that it sounds. And I feel like that's, that's what everybody does, right? Everybody plays the way that they love how it sounds. And these guys just did it the way everyone loved how it sounded, you know? It's just well, uh, remarkable. And Squire is known for being incredibly consistent about that. And the punchline with beating up his... Rick is it? He may have created a signature sound that no one else had by by abusing his instrument. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> with with less wood in the instrument, it became brighter, and he was known for this bright sound. Um, Probably because he was just trying to compete with Steve Howe's gnarly guitar tone that just kept getting brighter and more nasal. <laughs> well, I thought in the uh, in the Yes Years video, he actually attributed. Or maybe it was Bruford attributing it that to him. Um, one or the other was was trying to get above the other in the mix, mm-hmm. and so they sort of you know we were talking recently about the loudness wars in one of our episodes, and I guess in early yes there was the the brightness wars. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So can I take what Paul was talking about here and just tie in everything we've ever talked about on Progressive Palaver? And bring in Star Wars. Oh heavens! Why not? I mean, we've covered just about everything, but lessons learned now at this point in time in, I, the, la- in the last thirty minutes. Well, no, but 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 you know, you're talking about these, you know, these 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 bass players, you know, admiring each other and, and trying to emulate each other, but yet, you know, doing things that are no one ever thought of. And I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because no one ever told them they couldn't do these things. You know, like someone says, well, what if we, you know, doubled the bass track through, you know, a guitar amp? Let's let's do that, you know. And and it's that sort of unrestrained, innovative thinking, right, that leads to to a, a true sort of breakthrough. Where does what does this have to do with Star Wars and our discussion therein? You're asking yourself, right? Well, well. So one of the things that I've always struggled with as I was growing up was, you know, as in considering Star Wars, was this consideration of Luke Skywalker as this all-powerful great Jedi. How on earth did Luke Jet Luke Skywalker launch himself to the top of the Jedi list? This is exactly how. He had a couple of books. He had sort of an innate ability and no one to tell him he couldn't do something. And so that's how 
he was able to develop all of these cool things huh. and and have that that kick-ass level of ability that we saw at the end of episode eight. So that's where it ties in. Interesting. And the irony is, is he did have someone telling him he couldn't do all those things. It was Uncle Owen. Yeah. And then... Uncle Owen ended up as a barbecue. He did. And, and when you think about it, how ironic is that? The one person that was holding back Luke Skywalker from overthrowing the Empire, and the Empire came and killed him. There you go. Therefore, releasing Luke Skywalker to his greatness. Self-fulfilling prophecy. That's like an Easter egg that no one's ever discovered in Star Wars. <laughs> ah. All right, now that we've covered every topic um, in relation to yes. But you know, it's also interesting about that with Star Wars, is that Star Wars really, they didn't have all the shit they needed to do the first Star Wars movies. Like right. they, they didn't do miniature models the way they did. They didn't explode things. They didn't have spaceships flying through space the way they, they could have. And they literally had to create that stuff by doing things they'd never done before. And in doing so, created like three different companies that ultimately changed the course of right. movie-making history. In, and not just in Star Wars, but in all of these other movies that... So, and, and, and let's bring this back completely full circle. We've all seen the Yes Years video. What does Bill Bruford talk about? He said... I was going to play jazz drums and, and you know Steve was going to do whatever he wanted and John was going to sing about whatever and no one told us we couldn't so we did it right I mean that's it, it's brilliant yeah and and, I, and you know again this goes back to yes being greater than some of its parts huh so so listen all those listeners out there in the palaver world don't take shit from nobody <laughs> don't take shit from nobody people say you can't do it fuck that go you, do it you can do you that's right you do that's the lesson learned. There you go. Uh, you know, a complete life lesson. Where's my fucking suitcase? Right. <laughs> yes, Progressive right. Palaver brought to you by Where's My Fucking Suitcase.com. Right. <laughs> Just to be a curmudgeon, I'm going to take us out with the best yes song ever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and just so you know, this would have been, I think, 78, something like that. Yes. And, yeah, yes. But, but we didn't get a worldwide moratorium on killing of whales until 86. So not, not even this was enough. It, it, it still took years after this. That's because no one could get through the song. Was, was, I, <laughs> they, they hated it that bad. Was that in any way, shape, or form related to, what was it, Star Trek Four? Star Trek Four. Right. The Star Voyage Trek Home. Four. The Voyage Home. With the they shot whales. around the, they shot around the sun to travel through time, so they yep. come back to the world and save the whales and bring it back and restore peace to the galaxy. Exactly. Yep. And it's, a Klingon bird of prey, no less. It's such a, like, yeah, great. That's such a classic Star Trek plot. Brilliant. So, um, thank you, gentlemen, and everyone listening. Thank you for. Uh, for following us along through, you know, just a, a fun way to spend an, another hour on a cold, rainy afternoon. Dude, I think this is like two hours. Well, whatever it is. It's as long as balls. <laughs> good, good long time. That's only an hour, it's only an hour and 16 minutes. It felt like two See? hours. There you go. It's because we were all over the map. And, you know, I might edit it down a little bit. It, it might be an hour and 12 minutes. What? <laughs> <laughs> Progressive Palaver, as always, is available for subscription. On iTunes and Google Play, we are hosted on SoundCloud. And please, we encourage um, you to reach out to us on all the various forms of social media. 
that would be um, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I believe we're listed on all of those as Progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, or you can also search for Progressive Palaver, and we also have an email at progpala at gmail.com and a YouTube account. all the old people's social media, which I guess is fitting. What else are we supposed to be on? Well, like-